This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehia Suhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. My family, my ancestors were slaves in Potomac. Potomac was not always the rich and the fabulous. My family were slaves here. They owned land here. That's Izinwa Olumba of the University of London's Conflict, Violence and Terrorism Research Center on the complications of having so many groups involved in conflict in the Eastern DRC. Details coming up also. Thousands protested over the weekend in Senegal's capital, calling for elections soon. And Morocco's navy says it has rescued 141 African migrants aboard a boat in distress. These stories and more on African News Tonight. Ahead of the summit, several... Some analysts have criticized this weekend's African Union summit in Addis Ababa as nothing but a talk shop as it failed to present any concrete plans for ending several devastating conflicts, including attacks by terrorists in the Sahel region, months-long civil war in Sudan, and violence in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. Darren Taylor reports. Ahead of the summit, several African government officials told VOA the AU would put forward strategies to end conflicts that are killing thousands of people, sparking poverty and hunger, and stalling development. Instead, says Azenwa Olumba of the University of London's Conflict, Violence and Terrorism Research Centre, the AU seemed lost. AU Commission Chair Musa Faki Mohammed, the former Prime Minister of Chad, made the usual calls for leaders to tackle conflicts on the continent, and as usual, he condemned coups and quoted great African leaders of the distant past. Let us listen Mwalimu Julius Nyerere. I quote, The role of African nationalism should be different from the nationalism of the past. That the African national state is an instrument for the unification of Africa and not for dividing Africa. That African nationalism is meaningless, is dangerous, is anachronic if it is not at the same time Pan-Africanist. But, says Olumba, Nyerere's dream of one Africa lies in shards, shattered by ongoing conflicts and the AU's inability to unite to solve multiple crises. He says the AU is toothless when it comes to confronting rogue leaders, with the fighting in Eastern DRC being a good example. A lot of countries are involved in the internal politics of uh, the DRC, Uganda, Rwanda, they've all been involved in supporting one rebel group or the other. The M23, the March 23 rebel group, they are enlarging at the moment and they're increasing in both the number and the activities that are carrying out at the moment. So 
it is obvious that they are being supported by external forces, and these external forces are bent on changing the regime in the DRC. The M23 claims to be protecting ethnic Tutsis who fled to DRC to escape the Hutu-led genocide in Rwanda in 1994. Rwanda's president, Paul Kagame, a Tutsi, denies supporting the rebels. Human rights groups say the M23 and DRC government troops have committed widespread atrocities, including mass killings of innocent villagers. Ulumba says the AU's inability or unwillingness to confront Kagame is evidence of its current paralysis. The AU says a team led by Angolan President Jao Lorenzo has been doing its best to bring the myriad rebel groups together plus regional leaders for peace talks. But so far, any measurable success has been extremely limited and the violence continues. It's the same across Africa, says Ulumba, with regional organizations backed by the AU unable to stop conflict and political violence in West Africa, the Sahel, Sudan, Somalia and many other places. The uh, member states of ECOWAS, the member states of SADC, these are the same people that sit as member states of AU. If they are not able to manage their affairs at the regional level, how do you think they will manage their affairs at the continental level? So at this moment, the discussion on the relevance of AU is ongoing. Ulumba says African leaders continue to say there's no place for foreign troops on the continent and that Africans will solve Africa's problems. But he says on the ground there's little evidence of that and Africa's people continue to suffer while their leaders talk. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Thousands joined a protest over the weekend in Senegal's capital calling for elections to take place before President Macky Sall's term officially ends in early April after the country's top court overturned his decision to delay voting to the end of the year. That's triggered a major political crisis. The Constitutional Council intervened on Thursday, and the president, under growing pressure at home and abroad, vowed to organize the elections as soon as possible. No debt, no date has been set. VOA's Paul Ndiho spoke with Henry Muguzi, the African Elections Observer Network coordinator based in Kampala, Uganda, about what this all means for Senegal. Uh, what happened in Senegal uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, um, is, uh, is is quite disturbing, to say the least, uh, because uh, we had imagined that uh, if you are going to pick a country in Africa to benchmark on in terms of the democratization process, Senegal would be one of them. They, they, we we endeared and admired uh, the country's democratic ethos. But that in the middle of an election campaign, the president rises and is able to convince, uh, uh, you know, uh, legislators to agree with him that an election should be extended, should be postponed on what we think uh, are, are baseless and malevolent uh, grounds. We think this was, uh, was, uh, was, uh, was, was a rape on democracy. And we're happy that the Constitutional Court uh, has agreed 
not only with the citizens of Senegal, but also with us, um, you know, the democratic, you know, the uh, the advocates of democracy in Africa. As uh, uh, one of uh, those uh, distinguished uh, election observers, you've had the privilege of being in so many different countries. What does this say about uh, democracy in general in Senegal? Is it to that point where it's so fragile that any politician can literally uh, do whatever they want to do with this thing called democracy? Yeah, you're right. I think it's also the lack of consequences. Because I think he must have sat where he sat and observed the colleagues in many other African other countries, violating the constitutions and tinkering with them at will, and 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 getting away with it. If we did not see the overwhelming condemnation of the actions of deferring the 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 elections in Senegal, this guy would not have yielded. Would not have bad. So in the case of Senegal, Macky Sall has a lot of power at his disposal. He could literally or unilaterally decide uh, to uh, to do whatever he wants. Do you think with this ruling coming into play, saying that, hey, uh, whatever you're trying to do has to stop, what you did was unconstitutional, you need to go back to the drawing board and hold elections so that there's a transition to a new government. Do you think he can abide by that? We should not relent at this point because if we... Now, we went and say, okay, the Constitutional Court has uh, made a ruling, uh, our voices have been heard, and then we go to, we, we relax. It's likely to wait after about, if the tempo cools down one, two weeks, you might say, okay, let the election be there, but uh, instead of December, let's have it in October. You can clearly see he's trying to buy time and pull off something, and we, we, the one learning we get from that National Assembly of Senegal. Those men and women, those legislators that voted in favor of that uh, decision, they should be held to account. We have to continue putting and piling pressure on this guy because until the election is conducted, because otherwise I take nothing for granted. I am not, I don't think uh, there's anything that has changed. I think until that election, until that ballot is cast and the people of Senegal have have had their say on who is going to be the next president. This guy has the potential to turn around. That was Henry Muluzi, the African Elections Observer Network Coordinator based in Kampala, Uganda, speaking with VOA's Paul Indiho. Authorities in Rwanda have rejected U.S. calls for the withdrawal of troops and missile systems from eastern Congo. They say they are defending Rwandan territory as Congo carries out a dramatic military buildup near the border. In a statement today, Rwanda's foreign ministry spoke of national security threats stemming from the presence in the DRC of an armed group whose members include alleged perpetrators of the 1994 genocide. According to the Associated Press, the U.S. State Department on Saturday criticized the worsening violence caused by M23 rebels, describing it as a Rwanda-backed armed group. That statement also urged Rwanda to immediately withdraw all Rwandan Defense Force personnel from the DRC and remove its surface-to-air missile systems. Kigali denies that it is supporting the rebels, but is concerned about 
anti-Rwanda Hutu rebels based in the DRC, some of whom it says have infiltrated the Congolese army. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Yehayas Wuhib in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. A harmful practice called breast ironing or flattening effects about 3.8 million women in Africa, including some parts of Nigeria. The practice aims to delay development of adolescent girls. Gibson Imika has this story narrated by Salem Salamon. Patience Williams was only 10 when she was subjected to a practice called breast ironing. Worried that she would attract attention from men, her mother pressed a hot object over her breasts to stall growth. It's very painful. Immediately, she's done. I used to feel my body is hot. A decade later, Williams is calling for an end to the painful practice. Victoria Williams, who had also endured breast ironing, says she regrets putting her daughter through such an ordeal. They did it to me. It worked. But when I gave birth to my own, I tried it, but it didn't work. My remaining two girls, I didn't do anything to them. All I am doing is that I used to draw them close to me, make them my friends. Anything bothering them, they will tell me. While it's hard to determine how many women are impacted by the practice in Nigeria, about 3.8 million women across Africa are affected by breast ironing, according to the Africa Health Organization and International Health Agency. Choma Agwobu, a Nigerian gender rights activist, describes the harmful nature of the practice and how it violates basic rights. Imagine somebody heating up a stone and depressing a part of your body because they don't want that part of your body to grow. Nobody has the right to determine the rate of growth of any other person's body. Nigeria classifies breast ironing as criminal offense, as it does the practices of female genital mutilation and forced marriage. The country's Violence Against Persons Prohibition Act of 2015 specifically penalizes offenders who commit, quote, harmful traditional practices, end quote, with more than a four-year jail term or a fine of up to $559 or 500,000 naira or both. However, despite the law's provisions, there is no known record in Nigeria of perpetrators facing punishment. Justice Dukulu, a political leader in Jokwe village, says his community is committed to working with the government to stop breast ironing. But in some certain places like here, people still do it. My community leaders are people who listen to governments. They are doing their best to say that it will come to an end. The practice can cause not only tissue damage but also trauma. Other side effects include malformation, delay in breast milk production, and infection. Activists like Agwobu and survivors like Williams say legislation isn't enough 
and they are trying to raise awareness in communities where breast ironing is still accepted by spreading the word through the media and urging community leaders to condemn the painful practice. For Gibson Emeka in Abuja, Nigeria, Salam Solomon, VOA News. The Moroccan Navy says it has rescued 141 African migrants aboard a boat in distress sailing from Mauritania to the Canary Islands. The migrants, including three women and two children, left the Mauritanian coast on February the 10th. Reuters says the number of migrants boarding rickety boats from West Africa and reaching Spain's Canary Islands in the Atlantic Ocean has risen sevenfold so far this year from the same period of 2023. Spanish officials say Mauritania has recently become a major point of departure for migrants headed to Europe, sending eight out of ten of the dinghies that reached the archipelago in January. As part of Black History Month in the U.S., we present the story of a woman trying to preserve a hidden black church gravesite that Montgomery County, Maryland, wrongly sold to a developer back in the 1970s. The developer's son inherited the 150-year-old wooded, overgrown site and is working with Cherise Crawford to give it back to her and clean up. Eventually, it will become a proper cemetery where black people can visit their ancestors, some of whom were slaves. Crawford tells VOA's Carol Van Dam the land is only important to her but to dozens of other Marylanders whose ancestors were buried there. This plot of land is so important to me, and it means everything for me to preserve and restore it. My family, my ancestors were slaves in Potomac. Potomac was not always the rich and the fabulous. My family were slaves here. They own land here in Potomac. And I'm saying here in Potomac because I still reside in Potomac, but not where I'm speaking on. My um, family, my grandma, she was sold. My great-great-grandma, she had owned five acres. There's some family members that own, like, 28 acres and just so many. You know, I have copies of information on different lots that were sold. And I remember I was around two or three. I remember the houses. I remember as a little girl going to school across there, but they were forced out by the county. The county made my family move out of the shacks that they were living in because they did not have running water. And because my ancestors were not educated, so they moved. Some of their land were taken because taxes were slapped on them and they kept raising them and raising them and raising them to make it so that they could not afford the taxes. This land of the church gravesite eventually got sold to a developer, I understand, for like 160 some dollars. Yes, that land should never have been sold. It was tax exempt. You cannot tax a, a church or cemetery. It was taken from our family and it was a tax was slapped on it was put in place into a tax auction 
a gentleman who had no clue that he was buying a cemetery, purchased the lot for $167. And because he started to plan for building, that's when he finally found out that that was the cemetery there. Since this story became publicized locally, that happened about a year ago. What has happened since that time? Nothing. The only good thing that has happened is someone has come forward who has equipment and is ready to work since December to clean up this area. Property is still owned by the family who purchased it all those years ago. In the 70s, right? Yes. The gentleman who purchased it is no longer alive. He aired it to his son. And the only piece of land that I have left from my ancestors who sweat blood and tears on on this very land where is now this luxurious, fabulous Potomac. Mm-hmm. And I have two sets of great-great-grandparents buried there. I have a great-great-great-grandfather who fought in the Civil War, was a Civil War hero. And he he was paid $60 to to take someone's place to go into the Civil War. This kind of thing, you know, where there's an abandoned site that was a grave site for your ancestors. Do you know if this is happening in other places around the country? It's happening all over the country. It's happening in Montgomery County. And it's sad, you know, it's happening in Virginia. I've seen articles in Virginia. You know, people send me articles of this happening all the time. The fortunate thing for me is that my family, they're not laying underneath a road or building or anything. I still have a chance to save that place and they can have a decent resting place. That's uh, Chelsea Crawford, who is working to restore and preserve her ancestors' burial ground where the Union Wesley Methodist Church once stood in Maryland. She was speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Dam in Maryland. Niger last week missed a debt payment of $22 million, the West African Debt Management Agency says. That brings the total default of some $519 million since a July coup and its suspension from regional financial markets. The West African Monetary Union Debt Management Agency, Umuo Titris, said in a statement that Niger has failed to make a repayment of principal, which was due on February the 16th. Niger is subject to sanctions imposed by the Conference of Heads of State and Government of the West African Economy and Monetary Union. Niger has been suspended from the regional financial market and the regional central bank by the Economic Community of West African States and the West African Economic and Monetary Union following a military coup in July. 
South Sudan in Focus is now on WhatsApp. Send us a message on plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. Tell us what's happening in your area or give us your feedback on the stories you hear on South Sudan in Focus. We look forward to hearing from you on WhatsApp. That number again, plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. If you are in Sudan witnessing events taking place there or if you have family you are talking to there, you can call us on WhatsApp and let us know how things are going there. Dial the international code plus one, then 202-258-3076. The number again, the international code plus one, then 202-258-3076. And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehia Suhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Nabil Biagio, and our engineer, Bill Androdi, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.